This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. The North Bull Island is one of Ireland's most important nature reserves. And in this week's episode, join me, Ed Keeley, as we discover a little about the island's butterflies with naturalist David Nash. We learn about carbon cycling with marine ecologist Dr. Elner Jennings and about some of the island's important flora with botanist Con Breen. But first, ecologist Tom Cooney and I spend a lovely spring morning with some of the island's iconic and very vocal Brent geese. The brain geese are ahead of us there, Tom. So they haven't got long more before they depart, really. Um, they uh, at this time in spring, in April, they migrate away from Ireland and they go back to Western Iceland. They spend a few days, a few weeks there, building up their food reserves, and then they migrate further into the Arctic Circle of Arctic Canada, the Bathurst Island, Melville Island, and they spend the summer there rearing their young, and then the autumn they return. Uh, to Western Iceland, and then they return to Norpal Island and other areas around the Irish coast. They're the smallest of our geese, and they're exclusively a coastal geese. You don't find them inland. Um, very, very distinctive, black and white. Uh, people around the coast see them. Populations have risen generally from about the 1960s, about 10,000 birds, to something in the region of about 40,000 now, largely through conservation and protection. I guess the, the island itself is, is, is a stronghold for them on the east coast of Ireland, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, Northwell Island is, is one of the most important reserves we have in Ireland, never mind the east coast of Ireland. And the Brent geese have been coming here since, since people start taking records, since the island emerged uh, from the sea. And uh, you will find them along here. And uh, there used to be about three or four hundred in the 1960s, in the 50s, and now we have several thousand here throughout the winter. Um, so when they arrive here, their favourite food plant, which most people would never have seen, uh, it grows at, in, in, when, when the tide goes out, the small water channels left uh, in, in Sutton Creek and other places, and there's a plant called Zostra, Zostra Naltii mainly. Um, and then that's their first food of choice, it's very nutritious for them. Um, and as that's depleted, um, they begin to move on to other plants, such as the algaes. The green algaes people see in the lagoons, but very common, the algaes. So they start feeding on that. And then as the winter goes on, um, they begin to move inland into the playing fields. They start eating the grass. So this is where people see them in the football fields now. It's a very recent um, origin, this kind of behaviour. Uh, and it supplements their diet, really, because the population has gone so high, the food resources are probably not sufficient here anymore to sustain such a high population. And it's, it's, qu- it's quite a recent thing. So all around the playing fields around Dublin, and even inland of, um, of Dublin City and the south coast uh, of, of Dublin Bay, um, large flocks of geese can be seen flying into football fields. And um, they, spend, they spend a few hours feeding there, and then the evening time to come back to the coast for the, to roost at night. Um, and so that's basically what happens. It's, they're, they're very familiar goose now. Many years ago, they would have been a scarce or rare bird to see inland, and uh, now everyone sees them. People walk past them on playing fields and don't think that this bird, um, they might be seeing it in the winter time here, but uh, a few months later, that's up in Arctic Canada, where all the snows have melted and all the, the tundra has emerged, and uh, they're laying their eggs in this desolate landscape. Completely different environment. I guess they're a bird that's kind of iconic for the island now, aren't they? They're one that most people would associate with Bull Island if they don't know anything else, maybe. It's the most obvious of of the birds, really, because it's so noisy. 
and when you get a large flock rising into the air maybe three or four or five hundred maybe even a thousand maybe even more all in one go the noise can be deafening almost so everyone stops to look at them even people who are totally disinterested and bored they're delighted to see this because it's a spectacle it really is awe-inspiring in, in the true sense uh, of, uh, of nature just to see such a large number and the noise is great and often what often what you can pick out if you have a trained eye particularly in autumn is um, when they arrive back their plumage is different the adults look very different from the young birds and um, the young birds have white stripes along their back on their wings it looks, it looks as if they have white stripes and you can see them quite clearly with the adults the adults have, uh, have a very uniform color uh, on, on their back and so you can tell how many young birds are belong to the adults and you can work out how successful the nesting season was and you can gauge this now obviously there's a more scientific way but even just on a casual observation you can count maybe there's three goslings three young birds with two adults and you might in other years you might only find there's very very few young birds and you know that the nesting season was probably very bad for them so you can learn an awful lot from a very quick observation we're after sneaking up a little as you a bit closer to the geese here we can see a lot of them are, are ring birds and that's something that's the, the study of them down on the island I guess is something that's happening a bit more frequently now yeah the, the first studies um, were carried out in the 1970s on Brent geese um, I think it was in 1970s anyway uh, where we're trying to find out uh, a bit more about them about the individuals and what groups they belong to uh, where they migrate to and so one way you can do that is you can put uh, colour rings on their legs or legs of, of some type with some sort of code on it, maybe a letter and a number and that marks that particular bird everyone knows that bird it could be J5 or something that with a yellow ring and so wherever wherever anyone sees that bird they can report it and you can then begin to trace where this bird has gone whether it's feeding throughout the winter or whether it's actually going back to the Arctic you can actually learn an awful lot about them and at the present there's another study going on a more in-depth study of the relationships of the geese we can actually walk a bit closer I think we walk very very close no, no arm swinging um, these, these geese have become very tolerant of people but largely because they're feeding inland um, in, the, in the football fields and they're quite used to people walking past but the one thing they absolutely hate is a dog if a dog approaches or even they see a dog they're wary and they fly away because you have to remember when they're in the Arctic the main predator to, for their chicks would be the fox and so if they see a small fox looking animal which a dog is they immediately fly away where humans can actually walk very close to them now and um, when I became interested in, in birds 40 years ago you couldn't approach the geese at all but they've become habituated now they've become used to people and I wouldn't encourage people to be walking up to them but what you can do now is certainly you will you can actually approach we're now about 60 meters away from I'd say about 50 Brent geese uh, years ago you couldn't do that you just couldn't approach them but they've become so used to people now and um, they know that if you don't make any sudden movements um, you're no danger to them and you can actually listen to them and I hear the beautiful skylark now in the background again so if we just approach a little bit closer to the geese and if all of these geese are feeding on algae they're building up their energy reserves for the very long flight uh, and I mean if you think about it even flying from these birds could fly from Ireland directly to Iceland or they could fly to Scotland and then to, to Iceland the amount of energy it takes for a small bird of just over two, two kilos in weight the amount of energy it takes to fly that distance non-stop is incredible and then when they when uh, they get to green the Iceland they, they, they'll rest up there then they fly towards Greenland they fly over the Greenland ice cap and they'll rest on the other side of, of the Greenland um, uh, the, the island itself and then they make their way on these journeys are just incredible for a human I can't imagine 
it'd be probably like us trying to walk to the moon and back or something. It's really, it's very hard to take on board um, the efforts these boards make. Um, and of course, the reason they come here is because we have lovely mild winters and there's plenty of food here. And when they go up to the tundra areas, there's plenty of nesting for them and plenty of food up there. I guess when we, we when we think about that journey and how arduous it is for them, that's why it's so important. I guess the island is a refuge for them and that they should be as undisturbed, I suppose, as possible. Yeah, the the whole principle of conservation is now that um, not one group or one one country has a responsibility anymore for conservation. And so we've learned a lot about these geese over the years. They're they're reasonably safe in, the, in their nesting areas. Um, but when they come down to Ireland, when they come down to, to Dublin Bay, for example, you have to have a whole network of places where they're safe. Because if they're not safe here, there won't be enough birds to go back to nest and the population start declining. So conservation and protection is important in both areas, both where they nest and where they winter. If we don't protect them here, and if they're disturbed too much, um, they'll just stop coming here and they'll, they'll start going somewhere else. And so it's important to have a whole network of safe refuges for them, where, where they, they can obviously build up the numbers. And we can even see here how close we can get. They're not paying the slightest bit of attention to us. But you, but you, you will often see them walking along now at this time of year um, on the salt marshes, and they're picking up little little bits of green algae that's everywhere on the salt marsh. And that's just that's just to build up their energy reserve so they can the fat reserve so they can they can take this very long flight. And do you like to see them coming back, Tom? In the well, it's not just me. I think everyone everyone watches out for the first first family of geese. The first come. It's usually a family of geese that come along. The first ones. Um, yeah, so everyone watches out for them, and everyone tries to see how early they're back this year. So you'll you'll have a report. Someone will say, "Well, I saw them on the 19th of, the 19th of September this year," and then say, "Well, I saw them on the 18th." And so it's a little bit of competition among people as well to try and see them because it's 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 a great harbinger of the winter to come. All these birds are going to arrive back here, maybe 30 or 25,000 birds for the winter, and these these are one of the iconic ones we always watch for because you'd hear them a while ago as well as see them. So it's a very exciting thing. The Bull Island is home to over 1,100 species of organisms and this richness of life is in part due to the island's estuarine ecosystem. I spoke to Dr Eleanor Jennings about carbon cycling and why it is important for all the creatures which call the island home. So my name is Dr Eleanor Jennings. I'm an, an, a lecturer in environmental science in Dundalk Institute of Technology and I'm currently director of the Centre for Freshwater and Environmental Studies there. And before that, uh, one of my main interests and, and the area I did my research on was Bull Island and particularly how nutrients uh, affect Bull Island and the carbon cycling of Bull Island and how that's important for the little organisms that live in the mud at the causeway. And so can you tell me then a little bit about what is carbon cycling? Well, we all need carbon. Like We're all fixated these days on how much carb- carbohydrate and calories maybe we're eating. But that's important. We forget that we actually need carbon. That's carbon. And it's the same with all the creatures that live in estuaries and live on the land and live in rivers and live in lakes. They all, we all need carbon. But a lot of that carbon is locked up in organic matter. So it's important that that carbon actually gets back into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and then plants use it and it gets recycled back into organic matter again. And that has to keep happening all the time. And the thing about estuaries is 
Estuaries like Bull Island and the area around Bull Island are very important carbon cyclers. They're one of those places, one of those ecosystems that actually recycle some of the highest levels of carbon. So carbon comes into the estuary and then all the little microbes that are in the mud and all the little, the little worms and the little uh, bivalves and mollusks that live in the mud, they use that carbon, they put out carbon dioxide as we all do that goes back into the atmosphere and they live and it goes the carbon goes into their biosphere so if this cycling didn't happen there would be no life on earth so it's we actually forget these days when we hear so many negative things about carbon that it's actually one of those cycles that sustains life on earth and estuaries are just one of those hot spots if you like of carbon cycling on the earth Estuaries are a bit different to a lot of other ecosystems. And when we say ecosystems, we're thinking about things like woodlands, grasslands, forests, rivers, lakes, the open sea. And one of the differences about estuaries is that in a lot of those different ecosystems, the main source of carbon and how carbon gets from the atmosphere into the ecosystem is through plant growth of various types. So a lot of... so phytoplankton we hear about little phytoplankton little microscopic plants that grow in the ocean and they grow in lakes and they take carbon from the atmosphere and then they grow and then they can be fed on by other organisms in the lakes in estuaries a huge amount of the carbon actually comes down from rivers so instead of the main carbon source being from plant growth from algae or phytoplankton it actually comes down from rivers and streams and is brought from the soils on the surrounding uh, area land mass down into the estuary and then of course we add to that because we tend to discharge a lot of our waste out to the sea out to estuaries Uh, for example here behind we can see over in dublin bay is the sewage treatment plant for dublin bay and until um, maybe about a decade ago that was a primary treatment plant. So all the carbon that we excrete every day was actually an awful lot of it was just being discharged out into the bay. And, and uh, that fuels everything that we see happening around Bull Island. Uh, for example, we know that very large numbers of wintering birds can come here and feed. Where do they get all that food? There has to be carbon for them. It comes from all the carbon that comes down into the estuary from rivers, from lakes and from the human population. So how, how important an area is the Bull Island for, for study of these processes? To have something like this that's on the doorstep uh, of a big city is, 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 is an incredible advantage. Um, and particularly then to have somewhere that, that's so dynamic and that's changing all the time. So it allows it's almost like a a living laboratory on the doorstep of the city of dublin and it's been the site of countless countless studies student studies um i'm sure school groups come here uh, people who are doing phds i would know numerous numerous phds that have been done around the bull island area and dublin bay in the last 20 30 40 years so from that point of view i suppose bull island and the results that come out of those studies is contributing to world knowledge on on this as and, and how these these estuarine systems actually work and as for your own association with the island has that been a rewarding one from a personal point of view 
Well, absolutely. I suppose I grew up uh, in Clontarf, just off the Clontarf Road. So I was constantly as a child looking at this area. And, and, and it is, I would say, one of the things that made me want to study environmental science uh, because I wanted to know how does it work? How, how does all this work? And so I went then, I, my, my primary degree was in, in Trinity College as a botanist. But then I went on to do my PhD on nutrient cycling and, and how an estuary system actually works and particularly focused on the sediments around Bull Island. So it's had a huge influence on my life. I, I would say, yeah, it's had, it's had a very, very big influence. And, 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 and it's so satisfying then from a personal point of view to actually start to learn how it does work. And I'm still learning. David Nash is one of Ireland's foremost authorities on butterflies. I talked to David about the island as a habitat for butterflies and about a recent and rare arrival to the bull, the beautiful Marsh Fertillery. Okay, my name's David Nash. Uh, I'm sort of very interested in plants and insects, and particularly butterflies. I I am a former president of the Dublin Natural Sea Club and I'm a member of the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, you know, so I have a fairly wide range in, in ter- interest in insects and butterflies in particular. I, my wife and I were, uh, produced a book on the butterflies of Ireland a couple of years ago, so, so I have a special interest in butterflies and the Bull Island here is a lovely place to, to visit and, and, and see quite, quite a, a good range of Irish butterflies. And in Ireland, we have how many species of butterfly? We have about 34, I think, the, uh, 34 altogether, and that includes some of the regular migrants we have, like the clouded yellow that comes, big migration every 10 years, which you normally get a small number. I saw a clouded yellow going through my garden a few weeks ago, and 20 minutes later it came back, pursued by a bird, so I don't know what happened, <laughs> whether the bird won or not. Painted ladies are come in as, as well, they're migrants. All those, there's some every year, but they're big years as well. The Painted Ladies originate in Morocco, near Marrakesh, in the Atlas Mountains. Can I ask you about what about the island itself? Is, is the Bull Island a good place for butterflies? And then, and what is it about it, maybe, that's, that lends itself to that? Yeah, um, it, it's, it hasn't the greatest diversity of places in, in many ways. You know, there are probably about 15 species of, of butterflies altogether, but it's a big area, there's a lot of habitat, so the butterflies are, that are here are generally, some of them are here in quite large numbers. I think that, that, that that's, that's one, one thing about, about it. It's got a, a lot of sand dune habitat, which is good for, uh, there are a lot of nectar, nectar-rich plants, things like bird trefoil, kidney vetch, things like that. Our ladies' bed straw there, which is one of the plants that when hummingbird hawk moth which comes which is a migratory species to Ireland it's like a hummingbird it, it wings are beating very fast and it, it's flying while it's probing the plant for nectar and things like that so they're big source of nectar being a sand dune system essentially it's quite rich in calcium so the calcium loving plants grow here very very well the calcium would come from the sea with shells and all that sort of thing you know so it's an excellent habitat for food plants and so on which is the main attraction and you have a vast area here of 
grassland, which is very good for, for butterflies like meadow brown and ringless, which are, are, are very plentiful around. You have the small heat, which is um, probably coming much more scarce because a lot of the land that's not intensely farmed uh, has disappeared over the years. So uh, the small heat, for example, doesn't like it won't survive in ryegrass meadows or silage grassland and things like that. So it's a refuge in that sense as well. So it does very, very well. If you look around Dublin County, generally um, agriculture has increased enormously. Uh, silage making, weed killers, you know, all, all the herbicides and things like that. The habitat for butterflies is, is very much on the wane. It's decreasing very much. So this is the, if I want to go for see butterflies within Dublin, it, it's become increasingly difficult to find somewhere that I can see a reasonable number of butterflies. You know. So this is one of the very good places. It's reliable. You know that somebody hasn't come in and sprayed the cut the grass or whatever else or put on weed or fertilizer or whatever it is you know so it's a very important reserve in, in that sense there's nowhere like it in Dublin Can I ask you do you have a, a favourite encounter that you've had with the, with butterflies on the island like a mass hatching or a, a maybe a, a vagrant showing up that was particularly exciting? I suppose the marsh artillery to be fair to us a, a recent introduction I think to the island but it has been the you, you go down there and uh, the right time of year you're almost walking on butterflies. The marsh fertility are very sedentary sort, and they're one of the most beautiful butterflies of all. They've got a, a beautiful mosaic of colours on, on, their, on their wings and so on. So see these little butterflies flying around. They're, they're very small butterflies. And even in the cold days in September or February or March, you can see the caterpillars out sunning themselves. The caterpillars of the marsh fritillary are very interesting. Uh, in winter, okay, the female lays a large batch of eggs on, on the devil's bit scabies. It may about 80 or 100 eggs. They all hatch and they produce a sort of a web, a cobweb sort of thing around them. So they will eat leaves under the cobweb. When they get a bit bigger, they'll move on to another leaf. They'll weave another web and so on. Now, as the days get colder, going into September, they spin a thicker web. Um, it, it's silk, webs are silk, as you know, and so this will be a, a very thick sort of web. And so eventually they'll, they'll disappear down near ground level and a very, very small, they're very small at that stage, so the very, very thick web, very, very hard to find. But normally what you'll see is you'll see, a, you'll see old cobwebs lying around, the evidence of earlier webs on the vegetation around. Now, these are so tight, I think they're waterproof. So they're quite happy to overwinter in areas that are flooded for, for a period. There's enough air, oxygen and so on kept within the web to keep them breathing. They're, they're in hibernation, so their metabolism has slowed down very, very, very much. And the other thing is they, they're together in a tight clump. So their body heat is shared very much amongst them all. So they manage to keep warm by keeping close together as, as well, you know. So they're a, a marvel sort of insect. I think they're one of the nicest things I've seen around here. Con Breen is a botanist who for many years has led botanical walks on the Bull Island for the Dublin Naturalists Field Club. I met with Con to find out about some of the island's flora, particularly the pioneer plants which help form the still-growing sand dune systems. 
My name is Con Breen. I've been a, a long-standing member of the Dublin Naturalist Feet Club and even as far back as the 1960s I remember coming to the Bull Islands. It was the happy hunting ground of the club. Founded, would you believe, in 1886 and still going strong to this day. So we're here right beside the Interpret Centre on the Bull Island. Uh, the Bull Island, from a, a plant point of view, is divided into several different uh, habitats or places where plants grow. At the seaward side, facing out uh, over Dublin Bay, you have an area of the young sand dunes, the so-called four dunes. Then inland from them, over a few of the older dune ridges, you have an area of what we call the stabilised sand dunes. And these are the areas with which most people are familiar. It's important that these habitats uh, be maintained and protected because they're not only visually uh, attractive to uh, see at the height of summer, but they also provide food for a lot of other uh, things such as butterflies. I guess one of the interesting things about the island is that it's still growing and it's still evolving and still changing. Oh yes, uh, nature, as they say, abhors a vacuum. Bull Island is always in a constant change. New sand dunes are being formed, new habitats for plants are, are, are being created and hopefully uh, that will continue uh, for as long as uh, people are living in Dublin. If one were in uh, another foreign country and came across the variety of habitats which we have around Dublin Bay, for example the Bull Island, Hoat Head, we would be absolutely raving about it. But here we have it on our doorstep and uh, like everything else, uh, we're inclined to take it very much for granted. The four dunes are young dune systems and are one of the most interesting and important habitats on the island. These are still growing and have their own specialist flora. I accompanied Con to the northern end of the island to learn a bit more about them. We're here at the upper end of the Bull Island on the beach, facing out across the magnificent expanse of Dublin Bay, looking right around from Hoth to uh, Dalkey. You see the Sugarloaf and we can see the Wicklow Mountains uh, in a vast, vast circle of sky and uh, sun, all on our doorsteps, all to be enjoyed. Why we've come here out onto the beach on the island is we're looking at where young sand dunes begin to start growing and there are particular plants which we'll be looking at here which grow in this very very shifting changing environment so let's hop over and we'll have a look at one or two of them uh, we may well be standing in a spot where in over 100 years time there may well be another line of sand dunes so one of the very very common plants in this environment is the plant called salt wort. It's a very, very shrubby plant about a foot high with tiny, tiny white flowers, but very, very prickly to the touch. And it only thrives in this very, very shifting environment. But already uh, surrounding the plant is a little hummock of sand, which has resulted from the plant breaking the force of the sand as it's being blown in and it accumulates around this clump of a plant. Again, a meter or two away from it, we have another plant called sea orac, 
which has grey uh, mealy leaves. Again, it has trapped the sand, so it has the appearance of literally growing out of a mini sand dune. And then if we just move slightly inland, we will get early tufts of the sea scotch grass. Related to the uh, scotch grass, which uh, is a pest in gardens, this plant has the unique ability to be covered completely by sand, but it will inevitably form another fresh layer of roots and plants at a higher level. So this sea scotch grass is a very, very important pioneer plant in accelerating the growth of sandstones. And as you said, when you look back down, say we, we're looking back down towards the towers now and back along, uh, back along the beach, everywhere where we see these, these plants, right behind them immediately is a little tiny little hump that's starting to form. And it's incredible, it, it's really watching it, the dunes growing in front of your eyes almost. Yeah, well, th that is a classic textbook example now of the early growth of the sand dunes. And it must actually be said, and here, uh, I might be too popular with car owners, but stopping cars from going the full length of the Bull Island, which they could do freely up to about 20 years ago, has meant that these young sand dunes now have a better chance of developing because with the successive cars going up and down the beach, they were just ploughing through a lot of these young sand dunes. So it's encouraging to see that one of the great benefits of uh, confining access to the upper parts of the Bull Islands to pedestrians only is the uh, development of these young sand dunes and so helping to uh, continue the formation of the North Bull Island. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.